Hey everybody, welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. Uh, got some exciting changes in this episode that we are excited to share with you. Um, exciting twice. One day I will think more creatively in the moment or either write notes. But really why I'm here is just to let you know that this episode contains some really intense and direct content. That's not to say that we don't want you to listen. We actually want you to listen. Wanted to give you time to prepare in case you had the kids around or you needed to censor some information, put some headphones in. Um, this is an amazing conversation. Uh, we're picking back up from uh, a conversation that we started at the beginning of June, but did not get to finish until uh, this what month are we in? October. No, the end of September. So my friend Cedric is just phenomenal and you will see that on the other side. So welcome. Thank you for being here. This is Permission to Be. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change that. Yes. yes. <laughs> what do we do? Back to, like, go to town on some questions. Yeah. Like, let's tell some stories. The elevator pitch I've got for it is how to live a good life while your whole life falls apart. Mm. Okay. Out of, uh, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think out of the overflow of the spirit, the body does. Challenge some narratives. Why, why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This is, um, yeah. and I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail. Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, you all are killing it. Unfiltered. Permission to be. Uh, actually, my, my my literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so where did we leave off last time? <laughs> no idea. That was like 20 oh years ago, right? Oh, it feels like it. Definitely feels like it. That was post George Floyd or had George Floyd even happened yet? It was it was in June. It was George George Floyd. Okay. No, right. no, 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 no. It might have it been was, May. It was pre it was pre-summer. It was, was pre-George Floyd. It was mm-hmm. all right. So yo, what up, permission to be audience? You probably have <laughs> no idea what we're talking about, but this is actually conversation part two. <laughs> the one and none only Cedric Lundy. Dun, dun, dun. What up, y'all? Yo, Cedric! Dick Seddy in the house. What it is, <laughs> what it is. So excited to finally have part two of this conversation. Yeah, four it, almost, later. it almost seems providential, if you believe in that sort of thing, that uh, the last one was incomplete due to technical difficulties. Seriously, y'all. We, so this was probably different from any other intro because if you can't tell, Cedric is just good friend peoples. Like mm-hmm. this is just like another day sitting in the living room. Well, not mm-hmm. living room. 
at a brewery. It's where these usually things usually happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, Cedric's my boy. So uh, Cedric, who are you? Tell them. Tell the people. Educate yeah. the people on Cedric Lundy. So I guess I'll just go to the old hat way of introducing myself from all the years that I used to do student ministry. <laughs> I I was the guy that is black, but wasn't black enough for the black kids. I played baseball, but I wasn't a jock. I was in all advanced placement classes, but I wasn't one of the nerds. I was one of the best art students in my school, but I wasn't one of the artsy fartsy kids that no one understood me. There was just nowhere where I fit. (laughs) So for me the place where i really had to had permission to at least discover who i am was in my church youth group my church though we started going there when i was 6 years old and our family along with one other family was pretty much the only people of color in that church for 25 years wow so yeah we were the quote token black family it's Becca and Thomas. Emma, you want to come say hi? Oh, hi, guys. Hi. We're recording for permission hi. to be. My wife has permission to come and say hello to yes. friends. Yes. It's so good to see you. Oh, we got hi, everyone. I can hear you. Hold on. Oh. Hey, Emma. Long time <laughs> no see. It's, oh, what a pleasant surprise. <laughs> oh, Lovely to see you all. Are you okay if we include this bit in, in, in the episode? Absolutely. See now, even though I'm looking really tired, oh, we met at the family. It's not. It's not video. It's only audio. This one will be video. Ah, It's audio. Ah, joining us as well. Now look at look at this. I just want to say that this does mean she will appear on y'all's podcast before she appears on mine. (laughs) (laughs) Man, Man, he's trying to twist my arm. Some some not right about that. One of these days. You, you, you be careful what you say now, Isla, because right now you're being recorded for the Permission to Be podcast, which will air sometime <laughs> the beginning of next week. I yeah. don't want to yeah. be on. Right, you well, better get to bed know. then. Good night. Good night, guys. I'll let you get on. Good to see y'all. Bye. It's good to see you too. <laughs> Oh, so, yes, yes. Oh, you have the best family. Mm. Thank you, thank you. So I, I like them. I think that was our first family cameo. Mm-hmm. Oh, all right. Yeah. So there's like, a precedent. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That that was epic. So what is? Mm-hmm. So we also we've gotten to meet your family. We've gotten to uh, continue telling us who yeah. you are. So. <laughs> <laughs> that setup lends nicely both where I was speaking and then just my, my family coming in is that for most of my childhood, teenage, young adult, adult life has been spent as the quote token black guy. Mm-hmm. So the podcast that I'm referring to that my wife nor daughter has actually made an appearance on is Token Confessions, which is a podcast that I started with a friend of mine named Sanchez Fair, mm-hmm. where we started sharing our experiences of being tokenized, being the black face in predominantly white spaces. Mm-hmm. So going back to my teenage years, it really gave me an opportunity to 
um, discover my identity, but have my identity not rooted in, quote, being black, not being a nerd or fitting into any one of these different groups. My identity ended up being formed and shaped in my identity in Christ. And so that was a huge motivator for me to go into youth ministry, uh, which is what I ended up doing, you know, at some capacity for 17 years, full-time vocationally for 13. So like that was a huge part of just my, my faith foundation, but also existing in these spaces as a black face. And so I met my wife in one of the first first churches that I worked in. And, um, you know, no surprise, my, my wife is white, but with a, a caveat, my wife is Scottish. And when I say she's Scottish, she's not like been here, family's been here for generations. Like she came here in her early 30s to work at an international British school with no intention of staying long term. So um, our daughter is adopted. She's black. So continuing to exist in these predominantly white spaces has been, it has just continued to be a journey. There is no part of me that is resentful or bitter uh, for the foundation of not only my upbringing, but also my faith. That being said, I'd be lying if I didn't acknowledge that there is some baggage that came with that. And I mean, not to be too cliche at all, but as I like to say, it's only cliche if it's true, (laughs) right? Is that in those spaces, and it took me a while to really, truly, fully realize this and, and, and know it. I didn't have permission to be all of who I am in those spaces. I was expected, and it was never had to be said explicitly, but I was expected to assimilate into the majority culture into whiteness. And when I started to awaken, when I started to be burdened in particular with the rise in overt racial injustice and started to speak up on those things, I started to realize that I was violating the rules of being a token, that there are certain things I because I didn't have permission and because I was expected to be the mascot, like I was letting these folks down, like, yo, on the real, you know how mad some of these people are and disappointed that they Negro woke up (laughs) and started talking about this stuff? Not all of them, but some of them. They just, I mean, they're just, I mean, I honestly, I'm not even trying to give hyperbole. Like they're, they're disappointed. They're really disappointed. Yeah, no, I, 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 I feel that at a carnal level internally. I, I not only feel that I experience it, and I've seen it happen for you online. I just shake my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Your comment sections. Yeah. Yo, so, I had to tell one of them recently. Sorry to cut you off, but I had to tell one of them recently. Like, literally, look, look. I am not your negro. I'm not. Like the person that you love and respect, like that person don't exist. Like if you can't embrace and accept this fuller picture of me, then you never really 
fully, you never really loved and respected me. You loved and respected an idea of me. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. What would you say, would you say like, were you always sort of race conscious growing up or would you say there were some moments of awakening? No, I was always race conscious. It's almost impossible to be in all those spaces and not realize you're the only one. Yeah. That's not to say that there wasn't a certain comfort level. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, I got so assimilated that there are times for much of my life, that I was very aware that I was more comfortable in white spaces than I was in black spaces. Hmm. And so I guess like, so always being, being conscious of it, but being like more comfortable, like what led you, so in case you people didn't know, like, and I don't know if you would call yourself this officially, but I consider you an anti-racism educator. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. what was sort of the trajectory that got you here and, and yeah. you had like something go viral a couple weeks ago that you had posted and you're getting sort of these people listening to you, but at the same time, you're in this place where you're shedding or losing, uh, these people who saw you as a particular way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was the the walking, talking, animated uh, defense mechanism for them to claim that they're not racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's that's in some ways, and and to be fair to them, a lot of them didn't realize that that's kind of how I existed in their world. But I was aware of it. I was aware of it even back then. For some of them, I'm definitely aware of it for some of them now. And you know, I give a shout out to those who really did and have always just accepted me as I am and embraced, you know, this quote side of me that they hadn't really seen and that they quite honestly, they weren't going to see in that context of me being a youth pastor at a predominantly white church. They're just, they just weren't going to see it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't apologize for that because like for me to show it, I was risking my livelihood, but to answer mm-hmm. your question, I would say it was a series of events. There's a couple of things that stand out in particular. One would be going to a conference back in 2008, uh, Q Conference, Q Ideas. They had their quote, token black speaker, because <laughs> <laughs> the most of the people that were there and invited to it were people, white white evangelicals or people working within white evangelicalism and some, you know, young business leaders and professionals. And, you know, one of my friends from college actually was one of the co-founders of it. So that's kind of how I got the hookup to be able to go. But they had a, a executive from BET who was one of the speakers. And it was very, the format was TED, like TED Talks, but they okay. had 21 minutes to speak. There's a timer on the floor. They had to present their idea. It was different people representing different channels of culture. And he gave a talk where he, he I can't remember everything that he said because it was like 12 years ago, but this is what I remember. And he was speaking directly to a lot of the church leaders. And he says, a lot of y'all think that you are cool with diversity because you have black people that come to your church, that worship with you, that break bread with you, that are in a small group with you. But look, 
here's the, here's the deal. Like you got no problem with black people, but you don't like niggas. You don't like the black people who are really black. You like the black people that make you comfortable. Say that. That affirm your whiteness. Yep. That affirm it in such a way that it never has to be named. It mm. never has to be mentioned because mm. it just affirms the default nature of whiteness. It affirms the normalcy of whiteness and all of its customs and practices. And so that was one. Then, you know, the rest I could just fast forward through Trayvon Martin. Um, you know, after that acquittal of George Zimmerman, I, and I wish I was wrong about this. I said, my concern with him being acquitted is that if a average citizen who was told not to engage can kill a young teenager that he instigated the incident with in cold blood and get away with it, then it will signal open season on black people. Because if he can do it, that means police can definitely do it with impunity. And what have we seen in the seven years since that acquittal? Right. It was just affirmed. I I don't think there's any clearer language that we could have had than the ruling of Breonna Taylor. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Like it's codified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And we, we just see it time and time again. So, you know, there's, there's Trayvon and then there's Mike Brown and Ferguson and Eric Garner and, and uh, John Crawford III and Tamir Rice. And, and that season in particular was just the season where it was like one after the other. And we're yeah. getting these videos of it. And I'm watching these videos and saying, what in the world? We've had 20, 25 years of cops and seeing white people do way worse and walk away with their lives, like without a scratch on them. You mean to tell me this dude, just because somebody called the cops and said that some black guy has a gun in Walmart and you come up on him and you don't even take a long enough look to see that it's a toy BB gun still in the packaging and you gun him down and there ain't even no trial? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you can watch Eric Garner say, why y'all always mess with me? And dude gets choked out in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. And the person who got punished the most for it was the dude that videotaped it? That you yes. could have a 12-year-old playing in a park by himself for a half hour. I watched the whole surveillance video. He was in that park for 30 minutes playing by himself with a toy gun, that police car rolled up out of nowhere and killed a 12-year-old in less than two seconds. Pulled up over the curb, over the sidewalk, into the grass, and shot him dead. And to watch people who I was in a Christ-centered, Christ-centric community with, either ignore it or justify it, it just really started to help me realize what they really, if that was me, they wouldn't give a shit. 
Oh, but, but, I but wasn't of course there. they would care, Cedric, because it's you and you're their friend. And oh, oh my gosh, how could that happen to Cedric? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. But right, and, and just sit there and it's like, okay, but if it was me, but they didn't know me, they would be sitting there giving all the justifications, giving the police all the leeway, giving George Zimmerman all the leeway and accusing Anyone who questioned calling them the real racists and hating cops. And I mean, it's just, it's just increased. It's just increased. So I, I was already on my way out of the church that I've been at for 10 years. It wasn't public knowledge yet. But then when Trump was speaking at Liberty University, and this was after he already announced that he's going to run for president. <laughs> and he was there on MLK Day. And I made a post in response to what Jerry Falwell said, introducing Donald Trump as the speaker for that day. And he said that, and I'm paraphrasing, that Donald Trump reminds him of two of the men he admires the most, his father and Martin Luther King Jr. Now, look. Oh, hell. We got the receipts, okay? We got the receipts. It's called history. And I just pointed out, like, how are you going to stand there and compare him to your father in MLK? Your father, who was one of the most vocal evangelical critics of Martin Luther King Jr., accusing him of being a, wait for it, socialist and a Marxist. Of course, of course. Of being a communist. That's what he said about MLK. Right? So, first of all, these two people are nothing alike. But then comparing him to MLK, like, here is a man who's made a name for himself by insulting and dehumanizing fellow image bearers where MLK was a person who literally gave his life to uphold the dignity and humanity of other people. I was told that I would be written up at my job for violating the social media policy. See, this is how they always get you. I've learned this lesson multiple times now. They never actually address what is the real issue is that you spoke out of line and you angered and upset whiteness. Mm-hmm. That you, you basically, what you said was a threat to whiteness. It will always be about some other peripheral issue, like violating the social media policy, which in this case, I said, how? And they said, well, it violated our our political stance. And I'm like, political? I in no way, shape, or form told people who and how to vote. I didn't mention Democrat or Republican. How is this a violation of the apolitical position? Well, he's running for president, and people could infer that you're not supporting him for president, and therefore supporting the Democratic nominee, which I'm sitting there thinking, that's bullshit, but I'm on my way out of here anyway, so I'm not about to make a fuss about it. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's, so you and I's relationship sort of started right after that. 
mm-hmm. you, the spiritual community I'm a part of, you became sort of past, you were not sort of, I say sort of a lot. I, re- I was editing a <laughs> podcast today and I was like, I say sort of a whole lot. You were, <laughs> you were a pastor mm-hmm. there. And I always, when I'm telling this story, I always say this sort of coincided with my sort of awakening and beginning to have language around Mm -hmm. anti-racism, around a historical trajectory, a historical narrative and context. It was, you gave some sermons that were beautifully woven that were sort of these historical narratives. And I don't think for me, I had put it into those contexts, but also having a very similar experience in my religious expression in which like racial identity was either, was minimized or, mm-hmm. or um, we were sort of living in, in this utopia or, yeah. or this full utopia. And so you were really instrumental for me on, on that journey of awakening. But and, and yet and still I see, you know, that was five years ago. Right. I see that like even now I see more you're even more vocal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of injustice. So what has that trajectory post that, that experience with the church experiencing this race system <laughs> interpersonally, systemically, structurally? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, so, I mean, you said it. history for me is a big part of it. Cause you know, that, that same conference I ref- referenced earlier, I went to again after not having been for years, I went again in 2015, and it was in Boston. And uh, Mark Charles spoke. I don't know if you guys know who Mark Charles is. He's actually running for president this year. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's native. He's Indigenous American. Um, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he speaks a lot on the doctrine of discovery and how the United States of America is an inherently racist and white supremacist country and nation. And he just basically gave a compelling, like pretty much irrefutable argument for why it is, but he didn't just leave it at like, well, this is what it is, burn it all down. He's like, we need to, we need to reconcile this. And he doesn't even really say reconcile because he says the issue is, is we've never actually been conciliatory. Hmm. We have to concile. We have to actually create conciliation for the very first time, like true racial conciliation for the first time in our nation's history. But he does it all starting with the Papal Bull Statement of 1452 that gave the uh, monarchs of, of Spain and Portugal divine permission to go into any country, nation, or land that was not Christianized and claim it for cross and crown and uh, to submit the folks that they encountered there either to the cross or to perpetual servitude. That was the words that were used, perpetual servitude. So they were given permission to either enslave or destroy. And we saw that. That's that's how this country, this land was taken. Through the destruction of one and slavery of another. So just gave evidence of that all the time and just talks about how you know the 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 all men in uh, the u.s constitution when has it actually ever meant all men are all women 
And so just answered and filled in a lot of blind spots. And he talked a lot about revealing the blind spots of history. So I just went on this endeavor of investigating those blind spots. And the more I investigated those blind spots, the more it became clear. But for me, here's the really cool thing about the blind spots. It wasn't about hating, quote unquote, white people. It never was. It was just about the truth. It was never about being, quote, a liberal or being a progressive. It was just about knowing the truth and then sharing the truth with other people. And, you know, again, cliche, but the truth shall set you free. And so it's like affirming to hear, you know, you, Thomas, say, you know, you sharing the truth of that history in a way started to liberate me. And I've seen that happen for people, regardless of what part of the racial construct they've been assigned to. So like, I know, I know it works, but it also, it also brings about a lot of anger and animosity from people who do not want to let go of the ways that they've been deceived. And for the church, the church is so, I mean, to say they have blood on their hands doesn't even scratch the surface. They are so complicit in the construct of race and the project of white supremacy. Like they've been there from the very beginning. Oh, they're founders. Mm-hmm. Right. They they are co-founders, co-sign on this. Right. And what they don't realize is that so much of the way we do church, but in particular, theology, doctrine and gospel have all been infiltrated and shaped by white supremacy mm-hmm. and Christians don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. And that's why I constantly talk about white Jesus. So they understand if they want to understand. I ain't talking about Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not talking about, you know, the Jesus from the scriptures. I'm talking about white Jesus that America constructed to give divine permission and justification for the genocide and oppression and injustice. It continues to this day. And that's why you see most Christians, the best they can come up with is an altar call or a tent revival. Amen. Amen. Uh, Yep, take another tip. (laughs) <laughs> there's a white revival going on this weekend right down my street so go out to the tent and get saved i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna choose my words wisely because there's people i know and love who are involved in that and very much a part of it but that's just it's not for me it's not for me like for the folks that want to go out there and, and do that that's cool but if if i'm being totally honest and again i don't want to throw shade at these people this is based again just off the things that I've learned and, and and know and started to recognize. So the there's some survey that comes out every year that does this study on what Christians believe. And it's like like Ligoners or I L I G O N 
E-R-S. I got it on my phone where I don't want to go grab it and have this yeah. odd dead space in the recording. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, you're, now you're about to just, I'm just going to, I'm like, okay, I was trying yeah. to resist it. I'm just going to have to start writing stuff down now. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it basically is like a polar survey where they ask people, you know, Christians, people who claim to be Christians, what they believe around certain like statements of faith or doctrine, mm-hmm. or, you know, do you believe that scripture is inerrant? Do you believe that science disproves uh, the Bible? Just all those kind of questions. And again, working in youth ministry and being in the church in white evangelicalism for so much of my life, like those never seem like odd or strange questions to ask. But all these questions are being asked in regards to faith. And I grew up in a tradition where in order for you to have faith, you had to have pretty much unwavering uh, mental like cognition in agreement with those statements, yep. with those yep. beliefs. And now here I am and I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, not one of these statements have anything to do with how the faith is embodied and lived out white evangelicalism white christianity and theology is a disembodied theology and doctrine it may as well be neo-gnosticism so explain unpack that a little bit when you talk about disembodied it's a disembodied sort of statement of faith. It's, a disembodied it's all way. about the mind and what you think. It has nothing to yeah. do with how what you do aside from sex and pornography. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so you can be a Christian and not give a shit about racial and injustice and impre- oppression. That's political. And if you do, then you pray, you fast, you seek out the Holy Spirit, and you save souls, not bodies. Because at the end of the day, that's just what matters. You just got to get to heaven, right? Mm-hmm. The body don't matter. The body doesn't really matter, right? So it's a it's in disembodied faith. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's not cons- I mean, with with the with the body, it it does not really truly care about the body, and it shows in the very questions that it asks because they have nothing beyond sex and porn. To do with the body in occasionally drinking. Well, the body will deceive us. The body will fail us. Right. The body. So then, you know. It's only about the heart. Yeah. That's it. So we've had conversations about this, but what, as a black man living in America from your perspective and taking this notion of embodiment, Mm -hmm. what has that looked like for you? Because if I... I, I recall some conversations where we talked about sort of this awakening, even into that that process, the, the the or not the process, but just the this concept or this idea, this experience of being embodied and and moving from mind into the body, or from heart into the body, into this this expression of feeling. Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so many places I could go with that. But I mean, for one, like it just even begins with just being able to enjoy the physical world, right? Right. So there is no part of my faith that ever encouraged, because right, patriarchy is a big part of it too, that ever, ever encouraged me to enjoy something like cooking. So 
here's an easy way to explain it, right? What are the typical responses to culture within Christianity? It's either to condemn it, to critique it, to copy it, or consume it, right? So Mm -hmm. you got two that are all about what I think about it, Mm -hmm. what I make of it up here. Mm -hmm. The other two have to do with what do I make of it, but it's like, well, I like the form of that, so I'm going to make, basically copy that form and throw John 3.16 over it so that it's good to go. <laughs> and the other one's just like, I'm, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to eat this bread. I'm going to drink this this juice, right? Like church potluck. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll throw some fellowship and Jesus talk over it and... So I I just want to set people up real well for this. So let's let's, let's con, condone or no condemn condemn consume uh yep create uh c- critique critique no, and copy con, condemn okay, critique critique, and copy. yep condemn critique critique copy and consume. But there's a fifth response that I was honestly really never taught in like over thirty years of growing up in the church, and it's the very first thing we see God do. And what he tells Adam and Eve to do, and that's create. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Mm. And in order to I create, ahead. <laughs> right? You jump ahead. You jump ahead. But in, in order to create, means that we actually have to live our faith through our body, like we actually Amen. like say that again. Do it by not only through our body, but interacting and engaging the good world that God has made. Because before all of it was bad. It was something that was probably going to cause me to sin if I wasn't careful. And the biggest impediment to my spirituality was my body itself. So I can't dance and I can't have sex without feeling guilty about it. Right. And even when I play sports, you know, well, how do I, you know, how do I do this in such a way that that honors God? And it's just like, bro, just live in your body and be grateful. Yeah. Right. So how do we see that played out? Because I just threw a lot out of out there. So, you know, what one of the things that people in the church I grew up with used to love more than anything else in this world. Oh, please do tell when my mom prayed, they loved to see a black woman pray, right? But not just any black woman, a black woman who was born in 1954, who's seen and lived through some real, like, stuff. Some real shit. Right. Been through the shit. <laughs> right. And, you know, she had enough of an experience in the black church that even when she went into and family went into this white space she did not leave her blackness at the door but she was super professional because she's she's an administrative nurse okay like that was the trajectory she was on but when she prayed she did not leave her culture at the door so they loved it when my mom prayed but now i get have a better appreciation for why they loved it so much. 
because they were never free enough to be that free in their body, in their worship. See, we joke about white people not being able to dance. And it's not that they can't dance. It's that they've been told not to value their bodies. And so they don't know how to live in them. Yes, very much. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. Mm. Mm. So I have a, I have a question that might sort of take us on a different trajectory for a second. But how does... Uh, a predominantly white space begin to embody those things? Or what is the, in, in your opinion, in your view, what is the way to begin to go through that, to live that embodied experience so that it's not just a consumption of the prayer, it's not just a consumption of, of the dance or the moan, but to authentically be participating in and co-creating with? Yeah, I mean, that's a... That's a biggie, right? Because in that, they still need to feel like they have permission to be themselves and live in their bodies in the way that they live. So like, for example, while my mom was very, you know, very animated, very loud in her prayers, very what you would traditionally think of as the stereotypical black church, my dad was very reserved, but that was his personality, Mm -hmm. right? So there, I think in the process of what many of us who do anti-racism work in education, when we talk about divesting of whiteness, is we don't, we're, we're not telling people to divest of whiteness and just be left a blank slate. We're encouraging people to go about the process of discovering their own ethnic heritage and divinity that was lost when their ancestors decided to create a coalition around the idea of whiteness and in exchange their cultural divinity in order to be considered an American, in order to be considered white. Mm. So that's one of the things I appreciate about being married to a woman who is Scottish Mm. because she is Scottish. Scottish, like she's in touch and she has not lost her cultural divinity of what it means and looks like and her heritage of being Scottish. That's why she is perpetually homesick even after being here for 16 years. Yeah. And by being married to her, I get to not simply copy or consume her culture. I get to participate. I I get to I get to co, right? Come alongside, yeah. you know, not 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 collaborate. I don't come into it and create something new or you know, co-opt it, but I get to participate and celebrate it. Mm-hmm. So when we're finding ourselves in these in these spaces that are trying to be multicultural, multi-ethnic, the you know the buzzwords, how might you tangibly apply? that to those spaces uh have you ever given sort of any thought to like what that could look like because quite often it has looked like we're just going to invite people to assimilate to the dominant culture do you even think it's possible um I'm not sure yet, and it's a conversation we're actually looking to have on token confessions with Jen Kenny from mm. Speaking of Racism. Yeah. And what we want to talk about is, is how 
someone like herself and there's others like her that because they've taken up being co-conspirators in the anti-racism movement and quite frankly, resistance against Mm anti-blackness, she and others have reached a point where they have become almost racially homeless. In a way, it's like they've been disowned or kicked out of the coalition of whiteness. They don't fit. They don't belong anymore. And in some ways, they don't want to belong in the way they did. And I might be filling in parts that she'd be better to speak on, right? But at the same time, like she's not, never is going to be black. So where does she quite honestly find community, right? Because culture is a byproduct of community. Mm -hmm. So, right, like we got this phrase in the black community where we say, oh, she can come to the cookout, right? Where she can come and she can participate and she's embraced just as she is. She's not expected. And these folks aren't expected to come in and assimilate into black culture. In fact, if they try to assimilate, they will be looked upon with suspicion. When they come to the cookout, they're allowed to come to the cookout in all of who they are. They have permission to be as they are in that space. You might get made fun of, but that's just our culture. But there's a difference between (laughs) our culture, right? Mm -hmm. Where we pick on and tease those that we love. Yes. Yes. And that we've Amen. accepted. Amen. If you're not getting teased, you you be suspicious. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> if you're not being talked to like you like you a child, like you from Auntie or or or, or whoever, be suspicious. <laughs> right. You haven't, haven't been fully welcomed in yet. <laughs> But we have to we have to create some kind of space where honestly we can create some they can create something new because the reality is is how many of them are actually going to be able to really connect with the cultural heritage of their past and maybe it's a both hand mm-hmm. I don't know but I think it's a conversation we're going to need to start having instead of all these conversations trying to convince people that have no interests in divesting of whiteness. Yeah. Well, I, I think within that too, like for me, I, as I understand, as I experience it, there's this aspect of culture when you've done the work that culture is meant to be shared. And so when one of the things in my work that I, that I want to experience or, or see is in sharing that culture, like what does it look like to uh, uh, Barbara Holmes' book, um, contemplate, uh, Joy Unspeakable, Contemplative Practices of the Black Church, like to teach a person who has been deemed white or, or divesting from that construct of whiteness to live a embodied experience, an expression to understand what a moan is, the deep anguish that that carries, to understand what it is to for a black person to or the black church in the black church experience to have gone through the week with all of these 
aggressions or beatings or the systems and principalities bearing down against you and just to let it out through your body on a Sunday through praise and worship or whatever the case may be and invite people into that practice mm-hmm. because when I think about these systems of white supremacy affecting like a, a Jen Kenny or a Becca just as much as it affects us in different ways albeit but to divest from that and the liberation and freedom to experience, to be able to have that to flow through the body. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to be able to share that in a way that honors the culture mm-hmm. and continues to, because I think that we've, in, in our suffering, in our lament, in our oppression, we've been able to hold on to and cultivate these super sacred practices that extend us to something beyond just ourselves and into the, this this collective experience right well i feel like and i don't want to speak for jen but when the veil drops as far as you can't you can no longer unsee what you've seen and mm-hmm. um, as a white person that that whole identifying with whiteness that becomes a whole facade mm. and that that whiteness isn't really real that's not really it's it's fake it's not yeah it's not an identifier and so i also believe that those of us who are on that journey together uh, there's a new community that forms there are conversations that we can have there will be new community that forms around that mm-hmm. not just white people but it's more of a multicultural conversation and but there's also a huge understandably trust issue with forming that type of new community Um, a trust issue with white people yeah but 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 what you described as as a person of 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 christ-centric faith and follow Christ, which you just described is, is Revelation 21, which you guys have heard me preach. You've yep. heard me reference in so many yes, times, yes. Mm-hmm. which is the picture that we get in the end of all the honor of the nations entering into the, the, the quote, holy city. And that there's not this erasure of human culture on earth pre the return of Christ, all of the best parts of human culture from all the different tribes and nations enters into it and they're brought together where none erases the other or there isn't one that's centered and everything else revolves around that one. Mm. Amen. I don't feel like I'm losing my white culture. I'm learning that I've been holding on to something that doesn't exist. Mm. Like, I mean, it exists. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It exists, but it, but it's not a re. It's not like you were saying. Like you were talking about Emma. It's not a real, tangible thing. It, it's, it's this facade that was created for control by colonists who came over and wanted right. to implement it using the church and taking over land for capitalism. Right. Right. So, like, here's the thing that rarely ever gets talked about. Like, white supremacy deems most, quote, white cultures that were absorbed into whiteness deems those inferior. Mm. Okay? Because, mm. like, I mentioned my wife is Scottish from Scotland. All the families in Scotland. And it don't take long 
before some kind of comment is made about skirts, mm-hmm. you know, kilts mm-hmm. and haggis. Are you shit? No, seriously. In the same breath of, oh, I've always wanted to go to Scotland. Beautiful country. Blah, blah, blah. Home of golf. But there's other aspects of it too where, right, we got to get in the kilt joke and we got to talk about haggis, right? Italians, right? Oh, we love Italian food. We also have an obsession with the mafia. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Irish. Oh, we love a good pint of Guinness. But don't take long before we, you know, we come up with caricatures like the janitor in The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Right? And, oh, oh, we... <laughs> Oktoberfest. Like, every other beer right now is Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. Right? But, you know, we, we got it for all of them. All of them. So even the cultures that had to be shed in order to be absorbed in a whiteness, even those revolve around the periphery, mm. right? They're a little yep. bit closer in than, than all the cultures of color, but they still are compared to the standard that is whiteness. Whiteness in America. When you say that, it, I think that it's so important to, especially within this work, to, for me at least, it's been incredibly important to understand the construct of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether you label that from an academic perspective or whatever the case, but to realize that it's this hierarchical system mm-hmm. that, that labels people in and out based on its advantage to maintain power. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Which side note has zero to do with hate. Does hate come into the equation? Yeah. White supremacy will weaponize hate, but it don't need it. Yeah. It is completely and totally unnecessary for white supremacy and racism to survive. I.e. your Mitch McConnell's, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Man, um. don't look, look. Look, yeah, but I mean, like, okay, so there's a guy. <laughs> Tommy just spit his wine. Y'all can't do that. Well, there's a guy on one of my threads right now, right? Who's never overt. He he just asks questions, right? Can you define whiteness for me? So I defined it for him. I'll be interested to see what his response is. His response will tell me how invested he is in whiteness. Because the definition I gave him is a historically accurate description that is in no way negative or disparaging towards the people who define themselves as white. Mm. But if you're really, really invested in whiteness, what's the first rule of whiteness? You don't talk about it. Yeah. You don't name it. Yeah. It's just normal. Why do we have to call, you know, it's just, you know, and, and then they found themselves getting all tongue-tied. Well, and then, and then that's when they just go, well, you're the real racist. Now, I'm not saying that's what he said. I'm just saying I'm interested to go see what his response is because his response will tell me a lot. Right. And so, so you bring that, we, you say how much you're invested in and that brings it all the way back around to, you know, the, that indigenous person who's running for president right now and, and sort of the platform that that they run on uh, mm-hmm. about what whiteness is and it being a system and it being 
the foundation of of American to be American as we, right. as, as this election uh, as this the last four years not just the last four years but to, uh, when you really critically look at it to be American is to be white right <laughs> and it has always been that way mm-hmm. and w- with this notion or sort of the, this shiny hope of an idea of that it would be this inclusive place but structurally the way that it was built and and founded was we're going to perpetuate an inequality mm-hmm. <laughs> where we're going to get our riches from plunder and and destruction uh, mm-hmm. we're going to get our riches from inequality when you think about capitalism and break capitalism down it survives and thrives only on inequality the has right. and the have nots <laughs> that is basically uh, an enshrined yeah. system <laughs> capitalism requires that some people are poor mm-hmm. it just does yes okay yeah yeah and there is no one poorer than a free labor force. Hmm. 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 And so it's the conversation around the founding fathers. Sure, they owned slaves, or or sure that they like didn't want sort of these things enshrined in documents, and and that they it was a discussion. But at the end of the day, what won? What did they acquiesce to? What are the systems that they supported? Right. In their endeavors. And so we want to go back and do play revisionist history on these things. And it doesn't matter what ultimately they supported. What did they put their power behind? Right. And also, who are the people in their time, their contemporaries who said it was wrong? Because that's the part we're not told. But mm-hmm. the information is out there of who these people were. Mm. So if you were to tell, if people wanted to do some research on that, where would you point them? Stand from the beginning by Ibram Kendi, X. Kendi, period. Mm-hmm. Amen. The end of story. <laughs> there you have it, people. There you have it. <laughs> Becca, go. We're, Becca, you're trying to say, we keep talking. Oh, bless. I just, I just, this thought keeps running through my brain as you all are sitting here talking of why is it so important that we're Americans? What are we failing to embody within ourselves that we have to be Americans? And that need and that drive for that external approval is just another flag that we have not accepted or embodied who we are as people. And I feel like that drives more white people, like this passion just to to be something i need to be something because i can't i can't see who i am right well like you know it's another form of tribalism right and so it's i I don't think that that it's an odd position to want to be an american i want to have identify as as part of some collective i think that's something that's inherent in human nature but i think for us, it's imperative to ask the questions, what is that collective built on? What are the values inherently instilled in that collective? Some of that's just basic human psychology and group dynamics of Mm -hmm. how we function and thrive is less about being an American, but what have we now embodied American to represent? What have we said that we value or what have we shown? Not just said, but what more so what have we shown? in our actions mm-hmm. of, of who and what we value. Right. 
Well, and that's why I'm so critical of evangelicalism and Christianity, even though it's my faith tradition that I was raised in, because now I see it more clearly than ever. I mean, gosh, there's so many different ways I could go with that. But to answer your question, Becca, why do we have to be American? I'm not sure if it's that we have to be American so much as it is that in order to be an American for a lot of these people, we have to hold on to the line, these lies of our history. And we cannot acquiesce to people saying, hey, yeah, we said that, but it's not true. Mm-hmm. Like when when like look, you can sit here and say all men were created equal. And it was for all men, it was democracy. But the truth of the matter is, is it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Because not all even white, all white men were legally allowed to vote until 1855, Mm -hmm. which it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out 1855 Civil War started in 1860. I wonder how much all white men getting their right to vote had to do with strengthening the coalition in the midst of the threat of the end of slavery. Mm -hmm. Say Mm -hmm. that. Say that. Connect those dots. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Because, look, when this country started, they didn't all have the right to vote. Only the ones that owned property, land and slaves, had the right to vote. Because ultimately, the Revolutionary War was started to protect the capital economic interests of the nobles that settled here. And they got to thinking they doo-doo didn't stink. <laughs> and that's why they didn't like being taxed by King George. Because they're like, wait a minute. You're just a man. You're just a man, just like us. Why should we be ruled, right, Cole? Why should you infringe on our ability to expand our capital? hmm because the thing that really pissed them off was the drawing of the Mason-Dixon line. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not take any more native land past this imaginary line that King George just drew. Mm, mm. Right? Uh... As soon as the war was over, guess what? These dudes were in debt. Where were they going to get the money from? Mm. The dudes that fought their war. Mm. The people that they told, right, that he's a, that King George is a tyrant, and I'm not saying that King George wasn't a tyrant because he was, he was. Let's let's get that yeah. clear. But it's 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 like it's like Hunger Games, right? President Snow, he's a tyrant, and then Julianne Moore's character, who I can't remember the name of the character, right? She's just as bad of a tyrant as he is. Yeah, yeah. I can't help. I was think I was in the shower the other day, and this is so bad. I was like, we, we've gotten so comfortable with COVID deaths that it's almost as I was listening to some stories and I'm like, this feels like the daily tributes at the Hunger Games of the people that Ooh. had died. Ooh. Ooh. But it's true. Yo. Yeah. Yo. Sorry, where's, sorry. Where's, where's the lie? <laughs> Where is the lie? Right? Yeah. But, you know, to even bring this thing full circle, Cameron Linden, 
an autistic child in Utah who unjustly was shot by police. He's on life support. There's a bell tolling for his butt too, right? Because he's expendable, right? A lot of these, a lot of these folks, one of these days, white folks going to wake up and they're going to realize how expendable some of their lives are in order to maintain the lie. Because racism is, it can't be overt. It doesn't work if it's overt. Yeah. It will allow and actually look for some collateral damage. It will find the white people it deems expendable. That was part one of our episode with Cedric Lundy. Make sure you check in with us for part two as we discuss the verdict of Breonna Taylor. See you soon.